I feel like a stranger here. It's been so long since I've been here. It's uh, awfully good to be back, though, and a, a joy to see all of you here again today. There is a little sentence out of uh, one of Paul's epistles that I thought was rather striking, and I want us to think about it a little bit today. It's simple. It says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I know how to get drunk with wine. That's a fairly straightforward proposition. You just start drinking and don't stop until you fall out of your chair. It works fine. Uh, I've never done that. I just know how it is done uh, from what I've read and seen. What is not so clear, though, is how are you filled with the Spirit? Because the way Paul says this, it seems to be a matter of choice. In other words, you have a choice of, on the one hand, going out and getting drunk, or you also have a choice of being filled with the Spirit. And if it is a choice, what is that choice? And how do you make that choice? And is the receiving of the Holy Spirit something, I mean, or the being filled with the Holy Spirit? Because there seems to be a distinction between receiving the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. And is there something that you do or don't do that has to do with being filled with the Spirit? It does, I think, presume that there is a way. How, then, does one do that? Really? I think it's important for us to understand. Is there such a thing as a spiritual discipline? For, in fact, when we speak of an education or of knowledge or of gaining a knowledge, we speak of the discipline, different disciplines we study. Is there a spiritual discipline? For indeed, I, don't, I think every one of you would want to be filled with the Spirit. You would like to have more of the Holy Spirit. You would like to be empowered of the Holy Spirit because of the changes it makes in your life and because of the strength it gives you. Fine. What do you do? How do you go about that? Reason would tell us that without some kind of effort on our part, there is no automatic depth of spirituality in a person. And in fact, if you've been a Christian for very long... You know that you've had your ups and downs. You've had your times when you have been more or less spiritual. And there have been times when you could not, probably not describe yourself as spiritual at all and even wondered if you had the Holy Spirit, because that is the way life tends to go, I think, with all of us. I think there is such a thing as a spiritual discipline. I think we have to be careful about superstition, uh, such as, well, if you'll spend an hour a day in prayer, an hour in Bible study, and an hour in meditation that you turn these things into an end in themselves. In other words, because I have done my spiritual duty, therefore I am a spiritual person. And uh, I think that common sense would tell us that that does not necessarily follow. And yet, at the same time, without some level of spiritual discipline, is anything going to happen? without some effort, without some purpose, without some direction that you play, or some requirement that you place upon yourself. For all kinds of learning involve discipline. And one would suspect that when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, he is talking about something that will require some level of discipline on your part. Now, I will say this, that although I do realize that this idea of praying by the clock, studying by the clock, and all that can become a superstitious end in itself, I will tell you that in my lifetime, that those times when I have done that, it has made an enormous difference in the spiritual quality of my life, in my relationship with God, and my walk with God, and my service of God, and my personal growth. Now, 
First of all, let's take this passage I opened with, and let's take it in context. It's found in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He starts off by saying, Be you therefore followers of God like dear children. It took an experience before I really came to understand what this means. I was, Allie and I were babysitting or with, for, for some friends of ours. They had gone on vacation on the continent. We were keeping their kids for two weeks, and it was a real education for both of us. And I was in church one day with little Jimmy sitting next to me in church. And as I'm often prone to do in the course of a sermon which goes on rather long, and some of the sermons in those days did go on rather long, I lean forward and rest my elbows on my knees, pressing my Bible in my hand in order to just adjust my position to leave my back for a little while and what have you. So I was doing that. I was leaning forward. I had my Bible on my knees. I was looking at my Bible while whoever was preaching was preaching. And out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that little Jimmy had leaned forward and had his elbows on his knees. Now, it looked funny because it was really an unnatural position for a little boy. Fairly normal for a grown man to do that kind of thing, but it was an unnatural and an awkward position for a little boy. He looked funny. And I didn't, I just looked at him out of the corner of my eye, and after a few moments I straightened up and sat upright in my seat, and he followed and sat upright. After a little while, I crossed my legs. And guess what? He crossed his legs. And it was really charming, and as, you know, to use the expression as dear children, it was really interesting. And I had a, one of my friends on the faculty there, one of my co-workers on the faculty, he was a, he was a man who'd had some injury to his legs in the time gone by in his life. And he walked with a kind of a rolling gait like a sailor. One day I watched him walking across the campus with his son by his side. And his little boy, I think he grew out of it, but as a little, little boy, he had exactly the same rolling gait as his father. And the only way he possibly could have had it was by imitating his dad. Now Paul reaches out and takes that little thing about human nature and says, You should try to imitate God. And that's what this word means. Like dear children imitate their dad. Which involves a great deal of observation. And I don't think many dads probably are aware of, the, of how carefully they are watched. Nothing has ever impressed upon my mind the importance of example of a father and a mother for their children as that little experience that I went through, or even of an adult for children for whom they are responsible. Because they watch you. They are very, you know, have a great deal more time in many ways to watch than you do. They are concerned about you. They want to know what you think. They want to know whether they have your approval or disapproval. And they want to be like you because they love you and because they admire you. Now, there are many, I, I don't think there's, you, you need a great deal of instruction on what is necessary for a person to be able to imitate God. You have got to study the Bible. You've got to learn all you can about God. And you have got to imitate Sometimes, you know, the child will do this unconsciously, but the idea is that we would imitate even consciously the attitudes of God, the responses of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the, the values of God in our life, the things that he thinks are important would become important to us. Now, you can do a certain amount of that consciously, but I really think a great deal of it comes about in our life unconsciously as we study the Bible and as we grow in a knowledge of what God is like. For many times we have to take one thing we know about God and balance it alongside of another thing we know about God in order to come to a, a whole view. Because you've heard people say, well, you know, I read that Bible and I read that Old Testament and I don't like that God I see there. 
Well, they're seeing a very narrow range of God's responses to the sins of man. And sometimes you have to take that and you have to weigh it opposite the mercy, the compassion, the patience, the long-suffering of God, so that over time you come to know <clears throat> how he thinks, what he is like, what he values, what he hates, what he loves. And that is something that comes to you, I, don't, I know of no other way, than by constant, deliberate, careful exposure to the Bible. Not just something here and something there, but to the whole thing. And I don't know of any way that you can come to that without some level of personal discipline. In other words, there has to be a commitment to studying the Bible. There has to be a systematic approach to studying the Bible. You have to study it when you don't feel like studying it, because that's what discipline is all about. And I, anybody, any, any old fool can do what he feels like doing at any moment in time. The challenge is to do what you ought to be doing at a moment in time rather than what you feel like. And there are times when you have to get the book down. And you have to discipline yourself to do it. And you have to do it whether you feel good or not. This is what we must do. And if, we are, and if you're ever going to get the comprehensive view of it, you've got to read it all. And you've also got to take some time to think about what you have read. That there are times when you need to, having read the Bible for a little while, snap it closed, lie it in your, lay it in your lap, and stare, <clears throat> stare into space. And think about what you have read and what it means. You have to be able to make relationships between what you already know and what you have just learned. To be able to build in your mind a comprehensive, what shall we call it? A theology, a view of God, a view of what God is doing, an understanding of God that can come to you. He said, be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given us for himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather the giving of thanks. Now, there's a time and a place for everything. And there's a time for laughter and a time for tears. There's a time for joking and a time for sobriety. And we need to be sure that we have in our lives those times of sobriety. And when, when we do approach God in this way. But he is writing to a church and he says, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, these things should not even be named among you. So this also suggests the one line of the discipline that we have got to have if we are going to be filled with the Spirit. One of those things is the avoidance of fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking or jesting. In other words, the clean lips which some of God's people have been so concerned about to say, oh, God, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, as the time came to serve God. Well, that can be cleaned up. That can be purged. That can be put right. But, you know, I've noticed that, that if you are in regular study of the Bible, and in regular prayer, and if you are in the process of filling up the tank with the Spirit, as it were, on a regular basis, these things, these temptations begin to move out of your life. But it's interesting, he says... Don't let these things be named among you, which suggests a mutual responsibility among us all. And you know, this church has not had a problem in this regard. But someone raised the question just recently for churches out here and here, wherever they are, that don't have ministers, as to what are they supposed to do when the time comes for discipline in the church? I think that even though you've got elders in this church, you need to understand that Matthew 18 says, the first thing you do is you go to your brother when there's a problem, and you talk to him personally and privately and see if this thing can't be sorted out. 
The fact is, if you were living in some way in your life that was not right, and one of your brothers came to you and said, Look, Bob, Jim, whatever your name is, what you're doing is not right, you would probably respond to that. Because many times we go on our way assuming that nobody knows. And when somebody comes to us and says, Look, how you live your life is your own business, but I really think I ought to talk to you about this, that brings you up short and makes you think. However, there are some areas where we shouldn't even let it lie there. Then you go back with a witness, and you sit down and you talk to the person and say, Look, you are going to have to straighten this out. It's not right, and you know it's not right. And when that fails, you take it to who? The minister? No. You take it to the church. And you know what that means? If you're going to have this, that uncleanness, fornication, covetous, not be named among you as become saints then all of you have got to think in terms of how you're going to respond to this and how you're going to deal with this. For as a church, we need a certain level of discipline among ourselves. It should be with love. It should be with kindness. It should always be by opening the Bible and saying, we don't want to do this, do we? To be able to talk to the person and help them along. But we need, we need as a church to have standards of behavior that we expect one another to measure up to. If we had, and we don't in this church, mercifully, if we had someone who was, was an alcoholic, and regularly having a problem with that, and we as a group began to know about this, we can't turn our, our blind eye to that. We can't turn our back and walk away. We need to deal with that in our congregation. We need to go to that person. Families can do an intervention, and they have the authority to do certain things that maybe we as a church don't, don't can't do, but a church can intervene in a person's life, and who knows? Maybe, by a concerted effort, we could save that person among us who is an alcoholic. If we had one, I would recommend that we try to get someone who is knowledgeable in the field to help us help us work out a plan as to how to work with this person. Because what we want, what is it we want? Do we want to get rid of the sinner from our midst? Or do we want to restore the sinner in our midst to God? Well, if I'm the sinner, I sure hope that's your motivation, is restoration. But in the church over the years, we really haven't had a plan for restoration. And here in this little church, I don't know if we've even needed it. But the day will come when we will. And I really think that even the growth of your church, which I know is important to you, which you'd like to see in, in, in months and years to come, really depends on your ability to know how to maintain a standard of the church, how to restore people in love who are slipping and who are falling, how to reach out to people, how to build, how to create a spirituality. Because candidly, if all that's drawing people to this church is the social aspect of it, or if it's just the Bible teaching of it. There are a lot of different ways to get so, to be satisfied socially. And as far as Bible teaching, my word, we've got a surfeit of that on tapes, videotapes, and everything else in the world. That's, that's not enough. That's not enough. I think one of the things that people look for when they come to church is a kind of spiritual support as well. And there is a desire in people that there would be a depth of spirituality in their life. And that's, that's got to come from somewhere. It's got, to be, it's got to be built in us. We have to want to do it, and we have to exercise discipline. But there is a role of the people around us in doing this. He continues to say, But well, you know this, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. I mean, this is serious business. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you can't live just any old way. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Now, don't be partakers with them. You know, don't let yourself get drawn into that pattern of behavior, that pattern of thought, 
in that way which is very, very prevalent in the world around us today. Now, who's going to help? Who's going to keep you out of that? Well, there's nobody but you, really, in the long run, that's going to keep you away from it. And as a church, and I'll come back to this thought later, we have a task and a job as a church to be supportive of people in this regard. But in the end, every one of us has got to make the necessary decisions and have the discipline to do what needs to be done. You sometimes were darkness, but now you're light in the world. Walk like children of the light. Now, part of the pattern of behavior we're talking about here, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, is to walk like children of light. And don't tell me you don't know what that is. I mean, if you read the Bible very much at all, you have all kinds of, of uh, examples, rules, laws, statutes, judgments, explanations of and illustrations and examples to follow of how to walk in the light, just like that little boy knew how to walk like his father walked. You know, it's there for us, and we can pick it up if we just are willing to do it. As adults, we have to make that decision. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And it isn't as though we don't know what goodness is, and righteousness is, and truth is. We prove what is acceptable to the Lord, and we don't have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. No, we reprove them. We stand up against them. For it's a shame to even speak of the things that are done by them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest, whatever shows these things up, is light. So he says, Awake, you sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See, then, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. He is talking about conscious decisions to walk in a right way. To be circumspect. It means to look at things, think about things, and make decisions for the things that you know that are right. Redeeming the time, because the days are evil. It's awfully easy to let your time get away, your life get away, because your life is measured in days and months and times and years. And you let them get away, and they're gone. There's nothing as irredeemable as, as minutes and days and hours that are gone. And we go through weeks and months, and basically the excuse for not praying very much is, well, my life is very busy and I'm having a hard time finding time for prayer. And this is what he needs. You better buy back that time. You better redeem the time. You better find the time. Because there is nothing in your life that is more important than being filled with the Spirit, of walking with God, of knowing God. Nothing. So shouldn't that come first? Wherefore, don't be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Now we've come to the passage in question. But be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to say something interesting. He says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart to the Lord. Now, what is the role of this in spirituality or being filled with the Spirit? It's really, it's really a curious thing to think about in a way. But what he seems to me to be saying is, first of all, that you, when you speak to yourself, this is something that goes on in your mind, you know, you... All of us know what self-talk is. We talk to ourselves all the time about one thing or another. We think with words, and those words are a kind of talking to ourselves. And he says, speak to yourselves with psalms. How many psalms do you have memorized? How, how, how broad is, your, is the spectrum of availability that you have for speaking to yourself in psalms? Well, now, 
There is, of course, the act of conscious memorization that, that lays these things in our hearts, like the 23rd Psalm, uh, which, which I think probably most of us have memorized and could probably recite well enough. Uh, there is that, uh, is it the 111th Psalm? You know, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from which cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord that made heaven and earth. There are many of these psalms that because of repetition, and there are probably several psalms that you put sections out of that you don't know where they are, you'd have to go look them up, which is fine. But it is in the constant exposure to these things that, that we come to be able to speak to ourselves in the psalms. In my years as a student, uh, in, in times going by, that the pattern of prayer that I followed for a long time was I would go to a prayer closet with a discipline upon myself. I said, I'm going to spend this week an hour a day in prayer. And uh, that was not always easy to do. And commonly, I'd get to Wednesday, and, and it would break down, and I'd have to start all over again. I'm going to do another week, you know, of an hour a day in prayer, developing the systematic approach. I don't think I ever in my lifetime spent an hour in prayer, because you don't pray all that time. You pray for a while, and then your mind runs off down a channel. Now, this channel could be totally unrelated to God, or it could be related, in which case I would call it meditation. And we, we lapse in and out, oftentimes, of prayer and of meditation. But the habit I followed, and I don't remember if someone recommended this to me, I think they must have in years going by, that I took my Bible with me to prayer, and I would pray as long as I had anything to say, and then I would open it to the first psalm, and I would pray, make the first psalm my prayer, I would pray about the first psalm, I would read it, I would think about it, and I would mark it. The next time I came back, I would start with the second psalm. And so I went, and I have two different Bibles, and in both of these Bibles, I have, I think in every, almost every case, at least five marks by every psalm in both Bibles that I have been through. Now, when you do this type of thing over a period of time, psalms begin to print on your mind. And the time that you're spending with God is, uh, is much easier in a sense because you don't have to try to keep thinking, well, God bless this person and that person and run down your prayer list and so forth. All that is fine, and I think it's very important. But prayer is more than that. <clears throat> prayer is a matter of spending time with God and of talking with God. And we, we ebb and flow in something like this. We spend time with it and we go away from it. I think also, one of the things here that I like is the hymns and spiritual songs. Now we have departed from the psalms. You don't just have to have psalms set to music. These are hymns and then spiritual songs. And I really don't know in the first century what any of those were like. I would love to have heard them. I wish there was some way that we could find a musical annotation, but I don't know if they had any musical annotation. I don't think they did. And so we don't have them. But we don't need them in a way, because we also have psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there's a funny thing about music. Music is one of the most effective means of memorization known to man. I think it's far more effective than any other way, because we, the, the music, the tune is easier to learn and remember, and the tune once learned and remembered cues the words, and so you can so often find your way through spiritual songs. We are so blessed today with tape recordings of music, with uh, radio programs with music. And there is something about music. It takes words and puts them in three dimensions, and maybe even four. It has a whole new dimension to it. The dimension of feeling and of emphasis. And it takes us in places we otherwise would never go. And I think what Paul is telling us here is that that there is a touching of the heart that is needed. That just touching the mind is not enough. Somehow the, the emotions, the sentiment, the feelings of a human being have got to get involved in our time that we spend with God. 
Now, I know what it's like to spend a lot of time in the Bible as a simple discipline of study, and it's of enormous value all by itself. But it can be a purely intellectual pursuit. And the teaching of the Bible can be a purely intellectual pursuit. We can get all the details down about languages and about words and about translations. We can know when books were written. We can know who the authors were. We can outline the books. We can have all that stuff down with us. And we have done, when we get that, a very good thing. But a human being is rather more than an intellect. We have feelings, emotions. We have a spiritual side. And these things must be fed. It's entirely possible to be very knowledgeable of the Scriptures and to be as dried up as an old dead stick. What do you do about that? Paul says, speak to yourself in hymns and songs and songs and spiritual songs because it is in these things that the love of God, the power of God, the mercy of God are brought home to us and they touch our heart as well as our mind in this way. What I'm telling you is that in order to be filled with the Spirit, we have got to spend time with God. And that time with God can be filled with prayer, it can be filled with meditation, it can be filled with music, it can be filled with psalms, and that it is okay for us to come to tears. It's okay for us to be moved right to the core of our being by music, by thoughts, by stories, by inspirational writings of different people from time to time. These things, if you don't have these things in your life, will leave you dry and dead, unstimulated, and frankly, probably, unloving as well. So when he says be filled with the Spirit and we suggest that there is something you ought to be doing about that, Perhaps we can see that, that if you don't develop a habit of spending time with God, in whatever means that time with God can be spent, you're not doing anything. It isn't going to happen, as a matter of fact. Then he said after that, giving thanks always for all things to God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The, the, the statement is made to a church. And he speaks of continual thanksgiving for, for life and for things and for people and for love and for the things that we are able to share together. And then he says, submit yourself to one another. In other words, to humble ourselves, to not be vain or puffed up, and to be willing to submit to the leadership of others in our own church that we are, where we're trying to get things done. I, I think it's really hard, too, to overemphasize the matter of music. For so many years, uh, I, I oftentimes felt like music and the musical part of a church was, was a throwaway part of the service. We were trying to get it out of the way because we, were, we knew we had to sing songs, and so we'd stand up, sing two songs, songs, and sit down and get on with it. You know, because the thing we were really there for was, was not the songs, but it was the sermon. It's one of the reasons why, uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, that I, I have wanted us to sing far more. I have wanted us also to maybe sing a couple of songs and then sit down. Because we're not going anywhere. And the sitting down is a symbol of saying, we're settling in here to absorb the music and to, to sing to God and to think about the things that we are singing, to be uplifted together with the praise of God, with the, with the inspirational hymns that we have got, many of which, if you really focus on them as you sing, can move you to tears. They can touch your heart. They can soften that old, uh, you know, crusty soul 
down inside of us that isn't, that, that isn't, isn't absorbing anything. That can happen. And it's one of the reasons why I so hoped that as time would go by, that the musical tradition of the church would develop and grow strong. is because it nourishes a side of us that needs to be nourished. There's also the matter of neglect. There is a, it is a possibility that the spiritual life or a lack of a spiritual life is because we have neglected that side of our lives. When you neglect something, you don't give it attention. That means you can give it attention. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the elders. Meditate on these things. Give yourself wholly to them, that your profiting might appear to all. Being filled with the Holy Spirit then involves reading. It involves exhortation. It involves doctrine. It involves meditation. It involves giving yourself to it. Being holy. And actually being, and being diligent. He said that your profiting may appear to all. Take heed to yourself to the doctrine. Continue in this. And this is talking to an elder. He says, <coughs> if you do this, you can not only save yourself, but you can save those that hear you. You know, the sermon can be utterly useless. But at the same time, the idea behind a sermon is that you would be stirred up, that you would be touched, that those wellsprings inside of you of the Spirit of God might be opened up a little bit. That's the whole idea, is to come into contact with someone's circumstances that stimulate the desire and the love for God. Hebrews 2 and verse 1 also speaks of the danger of neglect. It says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. What does he tell you? He's telling you, you can let them slip. And the, the solution to that is to give the more earnest heed to them, to the things you have learned. It involves a conscious, disciplined effort not to let it get away from you. And every one of you here know how easy it is to let it get away from you. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard it? Pretty tough, I would say. Let me just summarize it this way. The way to be filled with the Spirit is to spend quality time with God. A lot of it. Deliberately. And even though... It may seem a burden when you begin. The time will come when you will relish it. The time will come when you will see the fruits of it. And you will know that every minute of it was precious and worth every bit of time that you gave it. Discipline is involved. The building of a habit is involved. It involves set aside of time, setting aside of time. Not a pittance of time, but ample time. Say an hour a day when your attention is solely on the things of God. Sometimes in my own past, I will tell you that the discipline that was required for me was that for a given period of time, I, I don't recommend to people, they say, well, for the rest of my life, I'm going to spend an hour a day in prayer with God because something's going to come up. What I recommend for building of the habit is that you set aside a week and say, for this week, my goal is that I will spend an hour a day of my life with God in prayer, meditation, Bible study. Oh, yeah, your mind will be elsewhere from time to time. 
But still, that time, you are in one place, you are alone with God. You may take music with you, you can take your Bible with you, you can take spiritual reading with you. Something that will help, anything that will help you to draw nearer to God, to know God better, that this is time that you will spend with God. Reading, meditation, music, songs, and songs. Now, there's something that ought to become apparent to you. By the way, I remember one year in my, in my experience, I came up on, this was when I was a student in college, and I had been trying to do this discipline, and I established it moderately well. And I came up on exam time, and I knew what was going to happen. The week, exam week, everything was going to be pressured. There were all kinds of activities that were going to be going on that year, you know, with all the dances and everything else leading up to it. And I knew that this was going to be very, very difficult. The temptation would be there every day to let this down. So I said to myself, Self, what you need to do is to go the other direction and give it an hour and a half. And I did. It's the only time in my lifetime, I think, that I've ever put together a solid week of an hour and a half a day that was set aside for God. And I did better on my exams than I have ever done at any time. I don't think it was altogether a matter of God had to flip some switches to make my exam. I don't think he gave me easier exam questions. I just think, frankly, that I was more together, if I may put it that way. Because I had put first things first. I had put God first in that week. And I was not going to let anything crowd God out of my life just because it was a busy time. I know a lot of people who have done that. They've also done it during the Feast of Tabernacles when they know they were going to be tempted to let that stuff go because they were so busy and, well, it's only one week and so forth, who have applied the discipline to themselves and saying, no, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to maintain the spiritual discipline during this time. Now, I will warn you also that there is a vanity of spiritual discipline, which is incredibly misplaced. But people fall into it from time to time, and they'll talk about it. And the place where you go astray on this is when you start talking about it. I am only reluctantly talk to you about it today, about my own experiences in it, because I feel it's necessary for you to understand that people have to go through these things at different times in their lives. My recommendation to you is that you don't do a lot of talking about it, maybe to your husband or to your wife, but I would kind of keep that down. Now, there's something that should be apparent to you at this point if you had thought about it. No church can give this to you. Nobody can hand it to you. You can attend church year in, year out. Church isn't going to do it for you. Because the church isn't with you on Monday when you get up in the morning. And the church isn't with you on Tuesday night when you're getting ready for bed and you have spent no time that day with God at all. These are things that you have to do alone. And you know that's really as it should be. Because the relationship with God is supposed to be personal. It's supposed to be one-on-one. It's you and me, Lord. And any other person, being, organization, or, or then entering into this is out of place and doesn't belong. This is, you know, you're not going to carry anyone with you into the kingdom of God. And you're not going into the kingdom of God holding on to anybody's coattails. You will go because you're a child of God, or you won't go at all. It's that simple. And so whatever relationship you have with God, and what benefits come in your life as a result of a more deepened spirituality in your life, those are going to come because of what you and God have done, not because of what anybody else. Now, I will say this. This is not to say that the church does not play a role in this. The church can't do it for you, but a church can help you. Human beings need encouragement. We don't naturally have a zeal for anything that continues no matter what. If we did, we would just burn out. 
And God does not want that kind of, of a thing where we get locked into something and we obsess. In fact, they have a name for it. It's an obsession. And God isn't interested in people who are obsessed with him. What he wants is people who will walk with him and be his friend and will love him and will serve him, not people who are obsessed with him. So our love for anything, I mean, our, we, we don't have a natural zeal that will continue no matter what we do. We are designed in such a way that even our best impulses grow tired. And in fact, they grow tired a long time before our worst impulses grow tired. We can get bored with a hobby that we dearly love. I remember, you know, the earliest, the earliest love of my life was flying. Uh, I really was coming of age in World War II, and, and all the fighter planes and all the aircraft and the development of airplanes had reached a stage just before World War II to where, you know, it was very exciting to a kid. And I remember sending off all kinds of box tops and getting back this little cardboard uh, flight trainer that I built up and it had strings that ran through it, a stick and rudder pedals and moved a little Piper Cub in the thing. I just loved it. Loved it dearly. And it was something so precious to me. Well, in later years, I actually got, when I got, got to the place where I could self-direct in this regard, finally at long last, I decided to take flying lessons and, and to get involved in flying. And something, and, and I loved it. I mean, I, I dearly loved it. And I can't describe for you the exhilaration of that first solo flight. When you first time and you go up in an airplane all by yourself, and you find yourself, once you finally get unbusy on the downwind leg, I did, and I looked around to, the, to be sure the seat behind me was empty. And when I, when I got to that place and I had a moment, I had the big, big old Texas Yahoo at that moment because of the accomplishment of finally flying an airplane alone. But something happened along the way. As, you know, flying, as much fun as it is, and as jo- what a joy it is, it is also the process of learning to fly is a lot of very hard work. And over time, the hard work began to drag, and I found my desire beginning to flag. But what kept it alive was magazines, books, articles, pieces, stories, and what have you, that by the continual stimulation of my mind with how good it was and how great it was going to be when I got the license and how I could do these things, when I got there, I mean, it kept kept the enthusiasm alive. Almost anyone who has ever done a hobby knows that hobbies, even the best of them, will sometimes pall. And it's through the books, the magazines, the contact with other hobbyists that the stimulation is created that keeps the interest alive. Now, it's strange to say, and one would not think it was so, but the same human attributes are at work in your faith. And in your discipline, in your love of God, your pursuit of God, your looking forward to the kingdom of God, it is a natural thing in human beings to tire. For our attention to flag. For our attention to go elsewhere. And in fact, it's a good thing for us that it does do that. Else, as I said, we might become obsessed with something. And that's not what God's after. So what am I telling you? What I'm telling you is that oftentimes... Your choice of reading material can really stimulate your desire and your interest in study and in prayer. The reading of the right books, listening to tapes, one of the modern inventions that people of old never had, which is a tremendous advantage to people, where they can, they can actually be in touch with the Bible and Bible teaching driving their car or their truck down the highway. And so it is that we have so many things that can keep our faith alive, can keep our interest stimulated, and can, can prevent us from getting bored. It's possible to get bored with the Bible. 
It's possible to get bored with prayer. It's possible to get bored with God, I hate to say. I don't think that would ever happen if you were in His presence. But living as we do, it is possible for that to happen to us. Unless, unless we do something to stay awake. Unless we do something to stay involved. Even the disciples of Jesus, after all the time that they had spent with Him, and knowing what He was doing, and having heard Him say what was coming, when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane with Him, couldn't stay awake. And you're no better than they are. And the fact is that unless you seek it out, unless you look for it, unless you're a, you, you look for the music, unless you look for the teaching, unless you look for the books, and unless you share them oftentimes with one another, you also can go to sleep. There is a role for a church because a church helps us to stay stimulated. It cannot do it for us. It can't go with us every hour of the day, but it can give us that little periodic stimulation that we need. In Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10, verse 19, Paul says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let's draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, we mustn't waver because he's faithful. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That word provoke actually means to stir up. It's stick the spoon in the pot and give it a good whirl. It says take a good look at one another and keep yourselves, keep one another stirred up. Not the easiest thing in the world to do. Especially when you're having a hard time getting out of your bed, out of the bed in the morning. It's hard to get everybody else woken up as well. But that's what we do. Whichever one of us wakes up first, he's got the responsibility to wake the rest of us up. So let's do that type of thing. And then he says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as we see the day approaching. You know, one of the really regrettable things that's going on now in the churches in our tradition is there are too many people who think they no longer need the church. And they just stay home. And they sleep in, and they study their Bible, listen to their tapes, and they go on and on with these things at home. But there's nothing to keep them from going to sleep. And they're not close to people who will call them and wake them up. And that's one of the things that I think as a church we must give attention to among ourselves. Like I said earlier, we really need to give some thought and consideration to what we as a church might someday have to do regarding discipline for one of our members. These are things we need to give a lot of prayer and a lot of attention and to try to be prepared for so that we don't get blindsided when, when the time comes up and we react badly or we treat someone shabbily or we fail to, add to, to, to work through the process of restoration as we ought to do. And we can learn from the experience of others. There are things that can be read on this subject and, and books that have been written on it. We can learn, we can grow, and we can strengthen ourselves in our ability to do this. And we have a responsibility to keep one another awake. To keep one another stimulated. The parable of the virgins comes to, comes to mind. How that when the bridegroom was coming, they all fell asleep. And finally, somebody gave the warning and woke everybody up. This is, this is I think, so very important to us as a people and as a church. Hebrews 10 goes on with a great deal more of that. I won't read that for right now because I want to tell you another thing that is very important. No church can give this to you. No church can do this for you. You have to do it yourself. But also, no church can take it away from you if you want to keep it. 
For the relationship with God is yours. It doesn't belong to the church. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It's yours. And even though the church may have helped you much in developing that love, if it ever comes to the place to where the church is beginning to destroy it, remember one thing. It doesn't belong to the church. This is something special between you and God. And any attempt by anyone or anything or any institution to diminish that love, really it ought to be something that would wake you up. It ought to be a stimulus in and of itself. It ought to create a determination in you that says, No! No one can take this relationship away from me. It's mine. And I'm going to keep it. I can't, I know, so many times in recent years I've heard people say to me, you know, I, I have felt worse after going to church, driving home, than I did going there from a spiritual position. I've heard that a lot of times. I think I would say to anybody who feels that way, you have an obligation to tell that to the church. Now, you could just quit going. But before you do, you really ought to go to somebody and say, I just thought you'd like to know. I went home from church last week depressed and discouraged and downhearted. I felt worse after I was here than I was before I got here. And I don't think that's the result that you wanted. Because the church needs a chance, doesn't it? Even a church needs a chance to realize how they have affected you, how they have you know, perhaps disturbed your life how they may have pulled you down, and they may not even begin to realize what they did in that circumstance. I'm talking about your church, where you attend. This is an obligation we all have to one another, that if that's what's going on, then we ought to do something about it. In Romans 8 and verse 31, this profound and important scripture comes to mind. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? I mean, God has gone this far. What makes you think he would go so far as to give his only son and not go all the way with you? He'll go all the way. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Nobody. It's God who justifies. Nobody gave this to you. And nobody can take it away from you. This relationship with God, this being filled with the Spirit, that comes from God nowhere else. Who is he that condemns? Who can condemn you? It was Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again on the right hand of God. He doesn't condemn you. He makes intercession for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword... These things are going to happen to you. You know, I want to tell you something. You build, you lay the groundwork for being filled with the Spirit. You study your Bible. You spend the time alone with God. You talk to Him. You think about Him. You sing songs to and about Him. You inspire yourself through the, through the Bible, through spiritual writings, through these things. You keep on doing these things. And when these things that he talks about here, like tribulation or distress or persecution, or nakedness, or the sword come your way, they will make you stronger. They will make you much more deep. You will be filled with the Spirit in a way that you never even imagined that you could. For in fact, all of these things, these oppositions to us, when we have the Spirit, all of them make us stronger and deeper. 
He said, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We just look like sheep of the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're going to win. We can't be defeated if we are filled with the Spirit. For challenging us only makes us stronger. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, not angels, not principalities, not powers, not things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not even a corrupt church. You know, I, as on a personal note, I think the thing that has saved me in years gone by is the fact that I have been a teacher of the Bible. Because even when my prayer life went in the tank, I still had to open the Bible and get ready for a classroom full of students. Curious, inquisitive, wanting to know. And so I couldn't let it go. Even at times when I felt low, even when I was depressed, even when I was discouraged, and as I say, even when I'd let prayer slide, I still had to get ready for a Bible class. It was with me every day in my life. And even now today, twice a week, I have to go to the studio. Once a week, often I come down here and talk to you folks or somebody in some other city or location around the country. I have to go back to the Bible. I have to go deep into the Bible, and I have to go to God, and I have to ask Him, what do you want me to do with this Scripture? What, do you want me to, what does this mean? How can I go about it? So I have this incredible blessing. I can't get away from it. And the Bible is with me all the time, and it is a power that cannot be overestimated. You don't have the impetus that I've got. I have an advantage over you. I will confess it. You are a disadvantage. You don't have to get ready for a Bible class Monday morning. You don't have to get ready to do a radio program Tuesday morning. And so somehow, some way, you are going to have to reach down inside of yourself and find the power to take the time to spend it in the Bible, to spend it in prayer, to spend it in psalm, to spend it in reading, in exhortation, and whatever you can get a hold of that will somehow draw you closer to God and will help you to be filled with the Spirit. Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, we're in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Our challenge, folks, is, what is it that we've got to do to tip that jug up and be filled with the Spirit of God, rather than you know, becoming dried up and desiccated like some old stick that hasn't, or some piece of ground that hasn't been watered in years? That's the challenge. And I want to tell you something. It is absolutely within your grasp. It's not hard. It's not way off somewhere. It is right within your grasp. The problem is, and it's the only one, and, and nobody can do it for you. Church can't do it for you. All we can do is encourage you. You've got to do it. Down inside of yourself, you have got to find a determination to be filled with the Spirit.